You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, good morning. Good to see everybody. Summer's like in full force, it feels like. Who's been on vacation? Who has yet to go on vacation? Awesome. I right, still got plenty up there. All right. Quick little vacation story for you. So I am normally not a very decisive person. I don't know if that surprises you. I like to kind of sit back and like hedge my bets and think about things. Usually that's a good thing. Usually. Sometimes indecision is not a good thing. So here's a quick story. Um, my grandparents, when I was growing up, my grandparents had a cabin on uh, Piedmont Lake, which is in kind of southern Ohio, and um, they had a pontoon boat on the lake. And so many summers, it's where I learned to go fishing, and it's where I learned to swim and all that stuff. We'd go out on this pontoon boat and just had a blast as a family. A lot of memories are tied to that place for me. And I remember being... Um, an eight-year-old or thereabouts, and it was my responsibility on this particular summer day to unhitch the boat from the dock. This is a big deal for an eight-year-old boy, right? And I don't know if this is true everywhere, but in this particular case, the boat was tied to the dock with three hitches, one in the back, one in the middle, and one in the front. Now, a smart person would think, okay, it's a little windy, and what I should do is I should like do the back one and then the front one, and then the middle one, and then get on the boat. But I was not a very experienced sailor as an eight-year-old young man. And so what I did on this windy day, my family was all on the boat. They got the coolers. They got the sandwiches. They got everything ready to go. And so I went to the back, and I unhitched it. Went to the front, unhitched it, and the wind picked up. And I got one foot on the dock, and I've got one foot on the boat. And I felt this happen, like, right? And so I'm like, oh, no. And so, like, I was faced with this moment of indecision, and I held off as long as I possibly could until sploosh, like right in the middle of the water. And I learned a very valuable lesson about commitment and decisiveness. So sometimes in the moment, you just kind of have to do it. Here's why I share that story. I think a lot of times the Christian life feels that way. I think a lot of time we feel like we're pulled in attention. I think we have one foot on the dock of life where life is comfortable, kind of we know where things are, it doesn't move quite as much. And then we got one foot on the boat, trying to follow where Jesus wants to take us into something else, into something new. And what it creates, the longer we stay in that tension, it just creates a profound tension for us. We're not meant to live that way. We're meant to be a little more decisive, but it's so hard, isn't it, sometimes? One foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. I think Peter was that way. I think he was that way personally. You see that in the Gospels. The Apostle Peter, he just moves back and forth. Like he's on again, off again with Jesus. And he's following him, and then he's denying him. And then he's doing this, and it's just like, oh, gosh, Peter, you're getting me seasick here. First Peter, this is week four out of our summer series this morning. And I think this is one of these places where Peter just goes, listen, I want to urge you. I don't want you to live in that tension once you get your foot off of the dock and get on to the boat. 
So that's where we're going to be this morning. This uh, text that we're going to take a look at is 1 Peter chapter 2. You can turn there. We're going to get there in just a second. And it's broken up into three sections. And in each one, Peter kind of intensifies this invitation to say, let's get you off of the dock and onto the boat and like stop living in the tension. And if anybody knew anything about living in that tension, it certainly was Peter. So three sections. We're going to go through this just verse by verse like we've been doing. And uh, I think you're going to get a sense of what I mean. There's so much in here, I cannot wait. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, here we go. He says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed... You've tasted that the Lord is good. So this is one of these great texts we just want to look at. What do we see here? We see a command. He says, put away, followed by five words. Then this great metaphor about infants, and all wrapped up with this conditional if statement he has at the end. So we're going to get to the five words and the metaphors in just a second. But first things first, that phrase he starts with in verse 1. He says, put away, put away. This phrase is used all over the New Testament, and it carries with it the idea of living out this new life in Christ, like getting off of the dock and onto the boat. It shows up in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. He says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4, 22 says, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to the former life. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. James 1.21 says, Put away all filthiness and receive the word which is able to save your souls. Here's the thing. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, take off, put off, throw away, whatever, it's the same word in Greek. It means to put off the sin that hinders Christian growth. These are the behaviors that prevent us from becoming who we're supposed to be. They're the things that keep us tied over here when we should be over here. So for Peter, what are they? Let's take another quick look. All five of these, and this is going to be unfairly quick. Just a quick glance at all five. First, malice. Malice. Malice is ill will toward another person. Wishing someone harm. Often hidden behind a smiling face, though. Deceit. Deceit means to bait somebody or to try and fool them. It's a fishing word, which is interesting considering Peter, isn't it? To bait somebody. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a word that comes from the theater world or the drama world. It means to pretend or to, to play a role, to let the face in front not match the voice or the intentions behind the mask. Envy. This one's a tough one. Envy is wanting another's downfall so that I could advance. Hmm. It's the opposite of love, right? Which is humiliating myself for somebody else's advancement. And then the last one is slander. Well-timed words that carry slick insinuations. <laughs> we hear this kind of, this one, this one shows up a lot in church. It goes like this. You didn't hear this from me, but... Right? All five of these words are this toxic quintet that erodes the love that Peter called us to last week in the previous verse. You can take a look at it if you've got a copy of God's word. 
where he says, like, having purified your souls, in verse 22, by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another, he says. And then he puts these five up here. These five things will kill brotherly love before it even has time to put its shoes on. These five behaviors turn a church of selfless love into a church of selfish competition. They turn a church of mutual benefit and trust into a church of suspicion and rivalry. These five sins tear at the fabric of a local church, ripping the threads of love that keep us together. So how do you get these things off your back? And how do you get them out of your church? In anticipation of that, Peter answers in verse 2. He says this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. What a great word picture, especially if you're a parent. You get that. What a tender, beautiful image that is. How do you create a healthy church? Intimacy with Christ. And no, there is no shortcut. That's all it is. This is Peter saying, if those five things that I just listed characterize you, you're not a mature believer. (laughs) If you love those slick sins, talking about people behind their back, if you love it when somebody else falls and you can advance, if that's your thing, you're still a baby. (laughs) And that's not bad, but all of your spiritual growth hinges on being humble enough to receive that. Here's the thing. Nothing kills intimacy with Christ like over-realized maturity. Thinking that you are something that you're not. Thinking that you're grown up when in fact you still are a baby. Nothing kills intimacy with Christ like over-realized maturity. Saying to yourself like, ah, man, I've arrived. I've been going to church for years. Yeah, but you're still a jerk. (laughs) Sorry. Not sorry, right? Here's the truth, though. Christians are never exempt from self-reflection. We never get to a point where we go, all right, I'm done, I've arrived, I'm there, I'm perfect, I'm all grown up. No, not if you're a Christian. Nothing kills intimacy with Jesus like over-realized maturity. And so in response to that, Peter, almost flippantly, almost accidentally, incidentally, parenthetically, after delicately offending my spiritual sensibilities, he drops this little phrase in verse 3, which I love. He lowers his voice, he leans in, and he goes, if, like, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, if, what an interesting phrase, Here's what I want us to see. That's not just a flippant little tack on the end. That's a really important phrase. That's like a verbal speed bump, like going, hey, whoa, 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 hold on, stop. Think about this for a minute. Here's what he means. You will never be satisfied in church until you are satisfied in Christ. Have you tasted that he is good? Yeah. Then this stuff actually is easier, isn't it? Or if you want another way of putting it, horizontal harmony follows vertical security. Or if you want another way of putting it, I will never have a free relationship with you until I have a free relationship with him. And so Peter leans in and he goes, you do know him, don't you? You do love him, don't you? He has your heart, right? You know how good he is. You've been up against the wall and you've still felt his peace. You've been restless and he's brought you rest. You were lost and then he found you because if not... Those five monkeys are never going to get off your back. (laughs) 
Now, don't get Peter wrong. By saying if, he's not inviting doubt. He's not going, he's not doing that as much. He's asking, expecting an affirmative answer, but he also knows how hard this stuff is to get over. This is Peter inviting personal examination, going, is this true of you? Have you tasted that he's good? Now, why is that so important? Quick principle. Because the greater your satisfaction in God, the greater your hatred of sin. Those five sins back in verse one, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, those five subterranean practices that poison the well, those five hidden relationship killers are so common in the church, they're so common in our lives, then as now, you don't get rid of them by learning how bad they are. You get rid of them by learning how satisfying Jesus is. This is a question of satisfaction. And Peter's just asking, okay, which satisfies you? Do you want to play by these five or do you want to just trust Jesus? <laughs> so this kind of, let's just push this a little further just to be vulnerable. Those five things, they feel kind of good for a little while, don't they? Is it bad to admit that? They feel kind of good. Like, it kind of feels good to, like, sort of slyly put somebody down, preserve your own reputation so you look a little bit better. That feels good in the short term. Takes the focus off of me, puts it onto them. Good. Right? Feels good to drop a well-timed word about somebody else. Not mean. No, no, no. Just a hint of doubt, right? Feels good to control the narrative because if I can control the narrative, then, mm, right? Here's what I want us to see, and then we'll move on. Peter's words here are not meant as a condemnation, but as an invitation. So let me just add my shoulder to this and go, are you satisfied in Christ? Does he really satisfy you? Have you tasted how good he is? Does your life crave him more than anything else? Or are you spiritually negotiating control over your life through slick sins? Oh. One foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. Then Peter moves us to someplace different because he wants to keep this on the front burner, but he's got to talk about something else. Having started talking about our satisfaction in Christ, he now shifts a little bit because as somebody who has yet to fall out of love with Jesus, Peter wants us just to see him. And so he launches into this extended metaphor about who Jesus is. Take a look in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, like looking for satisfaction, drawing near to him, wanting him, craving, as you draw near to him, a living stone, interesting idea, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and he's going to quote the Old Testament three times, Behold, I'm laying in Zion the stone, cornerstone, chosen, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, turning back to the church, 
You guys, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Gosh, there's so much in there. Peter's life was filled with rocks. The Sea of Galilee, where he lived and made his livelihood, had a rocky shore. He fished there. That's where Jesus found him. He would have identified with Jesus' words when Jesus said, you build your life on me, and it's like building your life on a rock. The guy's name, Peter, is even like a twisting of the Greek word for rock. And now here he is, 30 years later, imagining Jesus like a living stone. It's an interesting image. And then he pushes it further in verse 5 where he says, and you, like, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And then Jesus emerges a couple of verses later as a stone that people stumble over and trip over. And what's all this about? And so to get at this, we're going to get into Peter's head for a little bit. Peter's out to prove something about Jesus. Remember, he's talking about his satisfaction. He's out to prove how satisfying Jesus is. He's out to make a point. And it's a big one that we've really got to see. The first thing that we got to see is something that we may have missed. In verse 4, what's he say? As you come to him. Now that's a little bit tricky because he doesn't specify who the him is. Okay, so if you look back in verse 3, he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so the most obvious answer is that the hymn he's talking about here is the Lord. And so whatever is true of God is true of whoever he's about to describe. Here's why that's significant because Peter is going to describe this living stone, this dead thing that now is alive. Interesting. Life that we as living stones somehow participate And as he describes this person, Peter is going to connect a bunch of dots, leaving us with a picture that can only be Jesus. And so, for the first couple of dots, he turns to the Old Testament to support his teaching. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Peter lays out three Old Testament citations right next to each other. The first one is from Isaiah 28, 16, one from Psalms, Psalm 118, 22, and then another one from Isaiah 8, 14. And this isn't surprising, because let's remember, Peter was Jewish. He knew his Old Testament. As a young boy in school, he would have memorized great portions of it under the tutelage of a rabbi. This is Peter lifting ideas out of his culture and dropping them into his current situation. Remember, for these like 300,000 square miles of house churches that need to know that Jesus is good. So what's he trying to get across? Let's take each one of these kind of one at a time here. This is going to get into the deep weeds, but follow me for a few minutes. Verse 6, he cites Isaiah 28, 16, which says this, Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this is talking about the cornerstone of the temple, this Old Testament image, or in our 2022 American construction metaphor, this is the concrete footer. This is the starting point from which everything must be built. Everything later, everything else rests on this thing right here. And so it better be strong, better be reliable, 
You better be able to trust it. And so this is Peter saying, just like a temple rests on this cornerstone, build your life on Messiah Jesus, and ultimately, 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 you won't be put to shame. Then verse 7, he turns to those who choose not to do that. He cites Psalm 118, verse 22, where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Interestingly, Jesus himself quotes this passage way back in Mark because the religious leaders are kind of seething and the pot of rage is kind of simmering on the stove. And Jesus tells this parable about a sent son from a vineyard owner. And this is what he says. He says the exact same thing. This is in Mark. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. Is it marvelous in our eyes? And so Peter's kind of doing double duty here, isn't he? He's citing Jesus who's citing Psalms. All that to say, expect that Jesus will be rejected by men, but expect that he will ultimately be exalted by God. Then verse 8, Peter intensifies the outcome for those who reject Jesus. When he quotes Isaiah 8.14, he says, This stone is like a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, this one kind of strikes you as sad, doesn't it? Nobody wants to talk about a stone of stumbling or a stone of offense. What's he saying? He's saying that nobody gets around Jesus. (laughs) You can either build your life on him or you can trip on him later. But one day, referring back to what Pastor Micah said just a little bit ago in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is happening. You can build your life on him or you can trip over him, but you ain't getting around him. (laughs) Now, let's put all three of these together. Here's what I want us to see. Peter is building the case that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, and he's calling up these three Old Testament witnesses to testify. Now let's zoom out for a second. Why does Peter go here? Why all the obscure Old Testament imagery? Why can't he just say what he's trying to say? It's very unlike Peter to be so literary, isn't it? Peter's like the direct and to the point guy. Why the deep dive into the dusty pages? Remember why he's writing. We've said this each week during this series, and we're going to keep it on our brains. Peter is writing to 300,000 square miles of house churches in Turkey who are afraid of rising oppression, who are anxious about their place in the world, and who are eager to see Jesus come back so they can be with him. Does anybody else feel any of that this morning? And so with his witnesses giving testimony, Peter grabs the wheel and then he just dumps this theological dump truck load of gospel identity on them to a fearful church, to an anxious church, to an eager church, a church that wants to make a difference in a darkening world, a church desperate to hold on despite the winds of change, to a church worried about losing ground and losing hope. Here's the gospel truth about who they are. Verse 9, but you... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, we'll come back to this in a minute, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As if that was like this colossal mic drop moment. 
You're a chosen race. Just like Israel was chosen in their brokenness, so God chose you in yours. You're a royal priesthood, just like God wants his people to come close to him. God wants you to come close to him. You're a holy nation, just like Israel was saved and pulled out and called out for better purposes. God saved you and pulled you out and is calling you out for better purposes. You're a people for his own possession. He knows you, owns you, loves you, calls you, and he'll never let you go. That, now don't miss this, Go back to that verse. That, right in the middle of verse 9. Smack in the middle of this section is the reason for this. We haven't been saved to sit. We have not been redeemed and rescued to relax. All of this has happened for a reason. He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who's him? Not a trick question. Who's him? Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ and Christ alone. So let's put this all together. The reason that you enjoy the Lord's satisfaction, verse 3. The reason he's building you into something, verse 5. The reason he calls you all those things he calls you is so that we can tell a broken, hurting, and lost, and dark world how great he is. That's it. People wonder what the point of life is pretty darn close. The reason I love this so much is it strikes so close to the core of what we say we want to be about as a church, that we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. That's all this is. And don't be put off by the word proclaim. You may think that means words or like a bullhorn. It might, but not always. When Jesus saves you, your life becomes the loudspeaker, saying with everything you are, he called me, me. Can you believe that he called me and he saved me? What? He called me out of darkness, out of this hopeless, stuck place that I was in, into light, his marvelous light. How good, how awesome, how wonderful is he? I know that sounds wonderful and preachy, and like, yip, yip, yahoo, let's go get it. But here's the thing, right? Gas prices are soaring. The economy is imploding. Division is widening. Oppression is looming. Comfort is slipping. And hope seems fading. And then here's Peter just saying, hey, just cling to Christ. Just talk about Jesus. As if that's all that matters. Come on, Peter, wake up, man. Hear me, you will never find peace in a painful world by proclaiming how bad it is. You will only find peace in a painful world by proclaiming how much better Jesus is. And, I mean, just to put a really fine point on it, let's, let's push this, like, to the top of the news feed. Yesterday, uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The position has shifted, and that is a good thing. But gospel proclamation is not about position, it's about practice. Gospel proclamation is not about position, it's about practice. And so I want to challenge us as a church to think more widely about what this might mean. Proclamation is not just a position. When most women who seek abortions are ethnic minorities from low-income situations who are scared, young, 
not married, and have no support system. We don't get to sit back and go, well, the court reversed its decision. The work is done. We can all relax now. No. Not if we believe gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation is not a position. It is a practice. And so now I would say the real work has yet to begin. We as a church have more work to do, a greater opportunity. I would even say a greater responsibility to show that we're pro-life, not just in position only, but in practice. How will you move closer to moms at risk? How will you support the ministry efforts of Pregnancy and Parenting Center and other works like that? How will you move closer to the hurt in our world? How will you proclaim, not by position only, but also by practice, Jesus' excellencies and goodness into those situations? That's what he's talking about. Ultimately, 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 yes, this is all that matters. (laughs) Everything else is just gravy. Gospel proclamation in the scheme of eternity, the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners like me. Wow. So that eternity could be changed. That is the only thing that matters. When the overwhelming goodness of a merciful God really hits you, when you think about how you were far away and now you're close, you weren't a people, but now you're his. We were just like specks of dust floating in the wind. And then now he builds us into something else. How good is he? huddled in your dimly lit first century house church in the backwater of the Roman Empire with the winds of change blowing, you know that whenever those words were read and as they moved from your ear to your heart, it's not hard to imagine the response being just profound worship at a God who is so unbelievably good. But never content just to leave it there. Peter Practical Peter, pastoral Peter, pragmatic Peter, the disciple who always wants the bottom line. The what does this mean for me, Peter? Let's feel him turn into the third part of this section. Here's how he starts, and I absolutely love it. Verse 11, he starts with the word beloved. Here's why this is important. Because some of us have come so close to the darkness of the world that we don't believe we're loved anymore. And just to keep this above the news feed, I know that abortion is in the life story of some of you. And so you carry that weight on your back and you go, could the Lord ever forgive me for what I've done? And the answer is, yeah. (laughs) Beloved, don't you ever forget who you are. Don't you ever forget what he calls you. How would your life be different if we could just rest in the fact that we are loved by God? What would that mean? It's a wonderful mercy, isn't it? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Those five things he mentioned earlier, plus more. Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Those two words, sojourners and exiles, sounds like chapter one, verse one all over again. Your translations might say aliens and strangers. Same idea. 
Abraham, first time they show up, Abraham says about himself way back in Genesis 34. He says, I'm a sojourner and an exile here, and I don't have any land to bury my wife. (laughs) Sojourner and exile, just like Abraham, Peter's readers, and by proxy us, have no permanent home in this world. In Peter's world, just like ours, aliens, exiles, and sojourners have no legal status. They're second class. They're brushed off. They're looked over. They're hated. Many people wish that these kind of people didn't exist. And I'm aware that in our current political climate, those words and the ideas they represent are pretty loaded terms. So I want you to see this for what it undoubtedly, unavoidably, unashamedly is. They are us. When Peter was looking for a metaphor to describe the Christian sojourner, exile, homeless, This is deeply theologically significant because it is exactly our identity and allegiance to Jesus that makes us foreigners, strangers, and exiles. And at first, that sounds like so deflating, doesn't it? It sounds negative. Like, I play by the rules. Come on. Like our house? I like our neighborhood? We're wanting to put a deck on? We're wanting to put hardwood floor down? And now you're telling me that's a sin? Let us urge you to think that a little bit differently. I want to just direct your attention. Just listen to this one. This is Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews talked about this idea. And he said this, thinking about our spiritual forebearers, all these people who went before us in the church. He said, these guys, they all died in the faith, not having received the things promised. That's He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about Jesus. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to go back. You can go back on the dock if you want. It's okay. You can go back there. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Like, I love those words. Seeking a homeland, a better country. God prepared a city. As it relates to sin, here's what Peter wants us to understand. When you loosen your hold on the world, you'll find that the world loosens its hold on you. That's all he really wants to get at. When you place your hope in Christ, the world starts to lose a little bit of its luster. And so then Peter finally says in verse 12, he goes, all right, (laughs) keep your conduct among the Gentiles. In this case, that is anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Keep your conduct honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what does that even mean? I think it's very interesting. I think it's very compelling. I'm very deeply struck by what Peter doesn't say here. Knowing the full frontal attack that these churches are facing, he doesn't urge protest, doesn't call for resistance, no angry form letters, doesn't bang the drum, calling them to this like verbal campaign of self-defense. He doesn't urge them toward never-ending legal battles where they defend their morals. Peter, who once picked up the sword to defend his would-be-killed Messiah, Lord and Savior, Peter, who on the boat 
desperately hoped that his zeal for Jesus would eclipse his weak faith in Jesus. Peter, who always wanted to be first in line, ahead of the other 11, now with 30 years of walking with Jesus behind him, Peter unbelievably says, let your goodness defend you. Let your personal holiness carry you through. Let love for others be the evidence that sways public opinion in your favor. Let kindness and virtue so shine out of your life that even when they hold the match to light the bonfire of persecution, that God is glorified because you love him. You, you build your life on him. They, some of them are going to trip over him. But one day, everyone will fall down before him. We're faced with the question, what will vindicate me in a world hostile to Christ, hostile to the things of Christ, and hostile to those who follow Christ? Peter's answer is goodness, holiness, virtue, love. And that is so hard, isn't it? Because unlike every sword I want to pick up, those things require faith in my vindicator. So how are we doing? (laughs) What about those I really disagree with? What about authorities and governments and presidents and kings and leaders? Because you better believe I've got opinions I've got to get off my chest. (laughs) What are we supposed to do with them? Great question. And unfortunately, you've got to wait till next week because that's exactly where Peter goes next. Sorry, it's a dirty little preacher trick, right? Do it every once in a while. But seriously, though, this is so important for us to understand before we close. Satisfaction in Christ. Having laid this groundwork, Peter is about to push an unbelievable attention or attention for this persecuted people. But for now, here's a question that I've been wrestling with all week, and with this we'll close. If my life is a loudspeaker, which speaks louder? My cause or Christ's? Am I busy making much of myself or am I busy making much of him? Here's how you can tell. Where do you spend your resources? Not just money. I'm talking about your time, your emotions, your influence. Where do you spend your resources? What annoys you? (laughs) That's how you can tell what your life is about. What annoys you? And then also, where do you run for peace? Where do you run for comfort? What do you take comfort in? That's how you can tell. We're going to sing a song. So the band's going to come back on and and lead us in this really, really simple song. It's this affirmation, this commitment. It just says, how deep the Father's love for us. And there's this great line. It's like the last verse. So I will not boast in anything, no gifts, nor power, nor wisdom, but I will boast in Christ alone, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. This I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And so my encouragement to you is maybe today you got both feet on the dock. You're just watching Christians over here, and you're going, man, they seem like interesting people. Come on. Take Jesus as invitation. And follow him. Some of you maybe were living in tension. We're going like, I don't want this to go too much further apart. Get both feet on. You'll never regret it. It'll be harder, much harder. It takes faith. For those of you that have been walking with Jesus and, and following him for most of your life, the best thing you can do is just talk about how satisfying he is and how good he is. Because our world needs to know that.
Let me pray. Lord, we do just say thank you again for all of your goodness to us. Thank you that you are satisfying, that we can find our hope in you, and we can trust you. You'll never let us down. Anyone who trusts in you will never be put to shame. And Father, help us to believe that. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Would you just show yourself to be so resoundingly good, so unquestionably faithful. Lord, we love you. Thank you for taking all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our darkness, the shame of our past, and you bundle it up. It's as far as the east is from the west. It's at the bottom of the sea, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.